I'm Jamie Wheeler. When my daughter, who has autism, turned 18, the programs we depended on suddenly stopped, although her needs did not. So I started Austin's Autistic Adventures, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering autistic adults and their families. Much like our nonprofit, this podcast aims to spark candid conversations and build community. Welcome to Autism Unplugged. Welcome to Autism Unplugged. Today, I'm very happy to welcome as our special guest, Kyle Gabbert of the Bluegrass Legacy Group. And he is here to answer some very important questions about financial planning if you have a child with a disability. And particularly today, of course, we're talking about autistic people and their very special needs. So uh, Kyle, we have some questions for you we've prepared, and you may come up with some other things we need to know, but okay. can you tell us some key financial planning considerations for families with special needs? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, there's. Uh, I, I appreciate, by the way, the opportunity to, to be on here, and there are so many things to navigate and understand, and it's, it's income limits, and it's asset limits, and it's certain ages that things kick in or don't, and there's different vehicles that you've got to balance, whether it's a special needs trust or an ABLE account. And if you're not careful, you can actually end up with having government benefits initially, and then because you didn't plan properly and you were trying to do the right thing and you received assets, you could actually end up having all of your benefits ripped away. And so it's really crucial that you carefully plan for and understand the different hoops to jump through. That sounds completely terrifying. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Lisa and I both have mid-20s kids on the spectrum, and mm -hmm. we've probably made every financial mistake that there is to make. For example, I barely even know what an ABLE account is. So can you explain that? Yeah, great question. So in your defense, the ABLE account is a relatively new one. So that's a newer thing that we're having to navigate. ABLE accounts are established essentially state by state. And if you're familiar with how 529s work, then they follow the rules that 529s do in a lot of respects. So that has to do with how much can be contributed in a given year. It has to do with how much can be contributed over a lifespan. It also has to do with the way that taxes are handled. So there's a lot of similarities to the way that education accounts are set up. Mm -hmm. Now, how does it relate specifically to this situation that we're concerned about? So an ABLE account is really designed to provide a way for this individual to have ready access to cash beyond just a normal savings account that could grow, that could be invested, it could have some compound growth happening, but is going to be limited in terms of what you can spend it on. And furthermore, that is going to be limited in terms of total value that it could have in it. And so the definition of what an ABLE account can be used for is it can be used for things that are directly related to the disability, and that is a broad definition I will grant you, and then also basics of living. So it's really intended as like this pool of dollars that assuming this individual is sufficiently competent to make active decisions about their money, they would have access to it and could spend it as an ongoing basis and it could cover some of their basic daily living needs. As I mentioned, it does have some limitations. So $17,000 a year 
is the most that you can put into an ABLE account, number one. And that's 2023 figures, by the way. Depending on what you're reading on the internet, you may be like, no, I, I saw that it said 14,000. That was an earlier year. That was when it was first put in place. They step it up a little bit each year, and it conflates more or less loosely with inflation. Then the maximum that you can have in there is $100,000 in terms of having eligibility for SSI right? So for social security income, the total like lifetime maximum that could ever be contributed into it is right at 500,000. That is state specific, by the way, that goes back to the 529 rules. And so each state is a little bit different, but understand this is not where you're going to drop a nest egg of a couple million dollars to take <laughs> care of a special needs individual over their lifespan. This is more of an ongoing account where maybe their income gets deposited into it or a portion of their income does. Or maybe you set up some other investment vehicle that refills this account each year with twelve or fifteen or seventeen thousand dollars. And it becomes this again ongoing active account for covering some of their basic needs. Okay, forgive me for being pedantic about this, but the able account families can contribute to mm-hmm. Or whomever, I assume. Mm -hmm. And that money is not affected by their SSI or their SSDI will not be affected. Correct. So provided that we fall within those parameters I gave earlier of there's an annual amount you contribute. There's a total value that it can't go beyond. That's that Uh $100,000 figure. Mm -hmm. So it's not a place to stockpile money. It's more of like an ongoing kind of a thing. And then there's a lifetime maximum to it as well that's state specific. Okay, gotcha. So I'm just thinking that For example, I have a couple of family members that will probably leave my daughter some money, Mm -hmm. maybe not a lot, clearly not whatever the lifetime maximum would be. Sure. If she was to get some money in a will, instead of the expense of having to hire a special needs lawyer for a trust, can that money go in there? But it could only be $17,000 a year. Right, exactly. So what could I do with the the remainder of the money Mm -hmm. that continues to get put into that account because it's never going to be millions. Right. But maybe a quarter of a million. Mm-hmm, what would mm-hmm. you advise in that case? Yeah, so that's a, it's a fair question. And it all comes down to, you know, each individual is different in terms of their capability. So even if we back it up, we've got to ask the question, is this person capable of managing an ABLE account? So that would leave my daughter and her son probably out. They mm-hmm. would have to be cognizant or right. functional enough. That's right. Someone can't manage it for, for them right. as a as a oh. guardian right. or a legal oh. guardian or anything. Wow, oh. that's really important yeah, because they... okay, so Kyle, I'm mm-hmm. all great information, but it makes Lisa and I a little bit afraid because our children are not able to manage their own accounts. So if they do get a lump sum of money, there has not been a special needs trust per se established for them. Sure. Able accounts are closed. What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it's absolutely a reasonable question. And, and I do want to clarify. So the intent of the account is for them to own it. And technically, they do own it. Mm-hmm. So the difference is that with a trust, right, a special needs trust, the individual definitely doesn't own it. The trust oversees everything, and there's a trustee put in place and so forth. With an ABLE account, the owner is this individual. You could still have a guardian. You could still have a a custodian step in and provide the oversight on behalf of this person, just like you could in any situation where someone owns an account, 
We do this with elderly folks as well, right?、Mm-hmm. You own an account, but then, well, but my mother or my grandmother isn't really able to make these decisions. Can I put a guardian in place? Of course you can. Okay. But that is an extra step. It's not really the intent of the able account, but it is a viable strategy. And so, if it fits the sweet spot for you, in terms of Asset limits, in terms of the constraints on how much you can put in on an annual basis, and the only issue is you need someone else to manage it for them. Yes, you can identify a guardian that oversees the able account on their behalf. So that is an option in that case. I am already my daughter's legal guardian. Would that put me in better stead to oversee that account? Yeah, so another good、could. reason for you guys that have younger kids out there wondering if you should get legal guardianship. I think it's a really good thing. To have, especially in cases like this, can you speak a little bit more about legal guardianship and whether that's something most families should pursue if they feel that their child won't be able to make、sure. these kinds of decisions? Yes, yes. So let me just put a pin in that for one moment.、Sure. Since we were talking about the able accounts and you mentioned the guardianship, one thing it reminded me of is able accounts are unique in、uh, another respect, which is they have to have had a disability identified. Before the age of twenty-six, in order to even do an able account. So, if something occurs later on in life that results in an individual needing to go through some type of disability planning, the able account is no longer on the table at all. If it wasn't identified prior to that age. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. But I was twenty-eight years old and I was in an accident, or it just wasn't really diagnosed until my early thirties. Too bad.、Mm-hmm. If you didn't have that formal declaration prior to twenty-six, you can't use an able account. Wow. Yeah. An- another good reason to pursue those labels, folks. <laughs> That's right. right. Really, honestly, as as much as it might hurt you emotionally.、Mm-hmm. Or intellectually,、sure. just go for it because、yep. you don't want those doors to be any harder to open. They're already hard enough. That's exactly right. And on the subject of guardianship and the importance of that, I'll go a step even before that to say I think across the board you need to be doing some form of estate planning with your children because. Post HIPAA, which granted that was 1996 when that first got put in place, but a lot of us haven't shifted our mindset from that. Post HIPAA, it's a different world. So I've got kiddos in college, and I'm paying for everything. And my daughter goes to the clinic, and I call to find out, hey, is everything okay? I'm sorry, Mr. Gabhart, we can't talk、right. to you about what's going on. There's not a formal piece of paper that authorizes us to discuss it. I'm like, well, that's interesting because my check cleared. <laughs> you didn't have a problem with taking my money, money. for her to show up to school, but oh, because she went to the clinic, all of a sudden it doesn't matter that we have the same last name. It doesn't matter that we have the same legal address. It doesn't matter that my money. Is her money and vice versa? All of a sudden, there's this bright line the moment they turn 18,、mm-hmm. and that's just true across the board. And so, a lot of us need to get into this different way of thinking because we, more often than not, go well until we're in our 70s.、Mm-hmm. We're not going to worry about all that legal mumbo jumbo of powers of attorney and wills and things like that. These are conversations we need to have a lot earlier. And one example is the importance of establishing that guardianship. 
for an individual that's going to be needing help as an adult because there's so much of the world these days that's geared towards the moment they turn 18, it's a different ball game. Sure is. And they call them an adult. And I'm like, mm, but they're not really making adult decisions yet. <laughs> Too bad. According to their date of birth, they're now allowed to do everything. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to put those protections in place. Have you heard of shared decision-making agreements? I've heard of them, but I've never been involved in any, so right. I, I don't like know the it, details It's Basically, it. it's just a witnessed document that says, I have permission from my son to be involved in his decision-making. Yeah, that's interesting. And I have never had to use it. Mm-hmm. I don't have guardianship, but now that he's 25, yeah. it's going to be hard to prove <laughs> that he needs a guardian, I'm assuming, right. and that right. I've heard people have real trouble with that. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't think that he would have a hard time because of his conversation level. My daughter, well, I did get legal guardianship, okay. but the questions that they ask, he I, wouldn't be able he, to answer. He would not be able to answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a hard thing for a parent sure. to give mm-hmm. up that. But it can be expensive, though. I think we need to talk realistically about what these kinds of things cost. Um, I know that's one of the reasons my parents have been reluctant to pursue mm. a special needs trust because the fees are, let's be honest, they're pretty high. Yeah, they certainly but can talk be. about maybe a general range. I know you can't yeah. be specific. And the benefits in the long run to doing that because I think you would probably agree that even with ABLE accounts and what have mm-hmm. you, if you have any sum right. of money to lend to your child, you don't want any of that being taken by taxes, correct? Right. <laughs> so correct. I'll shut up and let you talk yeah, no. about what, <laughs> no, what special needs trusts are. No, that, that's, that's great. I, I appreciate that. So first of all, let me just set a fundamental background, which is the word trust is so generic. And far too often, we attach various assumptions to it. And it's everything from, oh, trusts are going to protect me from taxes, to, oh, trusts are only used for uber-wealthy families. And there's all kinds of things that, that we associate with it that there may be some elements of truth to, but aren't necessarily the case. A trust, first and foremost, is really about defining an entity that has the ability to operate under its own set of rules. And the reason that's important is that while we are alive and functioning and involved, we're able to really steer what goes on in the lives of those we care about. But there may be a point in time when we're unable to do so. And the challenge then becomes who's going to pick up that torch and carry it? And are they going to do it in a way that's consistent with my goals, my values, my ideals? The beauty of a trust structure is the ability to define an entity and establish a set of rules, procedures, concepts, principles that are going to carry beyond your direct ability to fulfill that intent that you had. So as opposed to having just this plan in your head that, well, if something happens to us, his brother's going to take care of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you don't know what his brother's going to do with his money or That's exactly <laughs> anything right. else. That's exactly so, right. So yeah. my wife and I have six kiddos, mm-hmm. okay? Three girls and three boys. And we've specifically structured our trust with the lens of, okay, 
in the event of our death, everything pools into this one bucket and we have rules in place. At age 25, you can get X amount of dollars per month. That's all. You can't get a lump sum if you wanted to, except there's a couple of examples of like if it's a medical thing mm-hmm. or a college bill or something like that. But the trustee knows like it's all spelled out for the trustee. These are the rules of engagement. And then at age 30, the monthly amount increases. At age 32, you can finally get a lump sum, but it's only a percentage of the overall balance. And so there's all these levers in place. They don't get carte blanche until their mid-40s. Because what we don't want to do is curse our kiddos with a large sum of money. And Mm -hmm. quite frankly, several of them, if I gave them money that had a comma in it, it would be gone by the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) And so in part, we have to protect them from themselves. And so a trust is a great mechanism for putting those kinds of constraints in place. Right. And a trust also protects in our situation with special needs, protects them from other People who might not have their best interests and they may have the best intentions, but maybe don't have the ability to make those kind of decisions that need to be made. You're so right. And let's even go for the really good situation of like they have really good intentions. They're trying to do the right thing, but out of ignorance, Mm -hmm. they might spend the money in a way that now causes this individual to lose their benefit. Right. Mm -hmm. The trust can put constraints on it to go, no, you can't just give them cash Mm -hmm. because if you give them cash, that's That will violate Mm -hmm. what's laid out for SSI and Medicaid. No, you can't just buy them groceries. I know that seems like a normal thing that would be healthy and a good idea. But strictly speaking, special needs trusts can't do that. No, you can't give them a gift card. That's not one of the options. And so things that we might logically be like, oh, that's a good thing. And it's being helpful and it's supporting them. Yes, but there's a very strict list of things you're allowed to use money from a special needs trust for and ways that you can't use it. And so those kinds of constraints can be put in place. So even if we've got someone with the best of intentions, they don't accidentally do something that's going to violate the other benefits this person's receiving. Hmm. One of the things that we run into a lot, we have four employees that are on the spectrum and they have to be very careful that their hours don't affect their SSI Mm -hmm. or their SSDI. Sure. I guess my question is, if you have a sum of money given to you, a will or a gift or whatever, if it's not in a special needs trust, that affects their SSDI, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, no, it it does. So- (laughs) <laughs> it's not as straightforward as it should be. There's there's some nuances, but I'll, I'll do the best I can to make it straightforward. First off, the number most people know is $2,000, right? So $2,000 mm-hmm. is right. that asset limit, pile everything together, what is it worth? But there are some gotchas to that. So uh, first car doesn't count. As strange as that is, I'm not sure why second car makes a difference, but first car doesn't count. Okay. Your first home doesn't count. That's strange. And so like there's a few of those kinds of like if, ands, or buts kinds of situations. So it's not uncommon for a special needs trust to buy a home Mm. and then have them rent the home from the special needs trust. And so they don't own the home and the trust trust owns owns the home, home, but they're living in essentially a home provided by the trust. But it doesn't matter. You're just paying rent. 
this is why we need lawyers. <laughs> because honestly, listening, I mean, I consider myself an intelligent, educated sure. person. Sure. And I'm thinking, how would you even know this? I, I know. mean, even if you wanted to self-educate, I don't think you can do this without professional help. Of course, you would agree. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, I would agree. Um, but it just seems so darn comp. We have kids all the time that their SSI gets affected in one, one way or sure. the other. And we had to tell them that you are responsible for knowing when that line is mm-hmm. because we we can't manage yeah. all that. Mm-hmm. So getting back to costs, though, because I do want to be re- transparent. Sure. In this podcast, we talk about yeah. what things really cost. Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, I know this is, you know, you can't give me, <laughs> you know, absolute right. particulars, but is there a a range that families should be thinking about for hiring a special needs trust lawyer? Sure. So I would say on the low end, it's probably $3,000. Okay. And there are some that are, are going to charge ten dollars to $15,000. But unless we're talking about a really complex estate, it, it's not really going to go much further than that. That's a relief because yeah. I've known people that think uh, they just hear the word lawyer and they, know. you know, it's just like, nope, can't do that. But when it's about their future and that it really makes a lot of sense to mm-hmm. me talking about the levers that are in place. So that's it's been very illuminating. Oh yeah, uh, thank and you. Absolutely. And and then there the the other piece that sometimes trips people up is there are ongoing costs with those things. Mm. So let's say, for example, that the part of funding the trust is setting up an investment account that's going to kick off a certain amount of money on an ongoing basis. There might be an internal cost to operating that. Mm-hmm. That might be one percent, or it might be a little less than one percent. Might be a little bit more, but that's a pretty common figure is around 1%. Uh, So in that case, then there's a a cost, but it isn't something that you're writing a check for. And so if you had $400,000 that was in this, then at 1%, that's 4,000 a year, but that's out of the investments themselves. Okay. And so if you structure the investments to kick out 6% a year, then maybe 1% goes towards covering that and 5% is the stream of income the individual Mm -hmm. needs in that rough scenario. That's really wonderful to know because I thought it would be much more. And some are. So don't, don't get me wrong. There may be some that are 1.2 or 1.3, mm-hmm. but there are some that particularly if it's a larger amount of money might be less on an annual basis. Now, the only other fee that comes into play on an ongoing basis is if you need a professional trustee. Mm. So if you're not going to have a friend or family member or someone like that serve as the trustee, then there is a reasonable compensation that goes along with that. Oftentimes, that is fee-based as well. It could be a half a percent. It might be a full percent. It might just be a transactional one like, hey, every time they need money, that's going to be a $250 fee or whatever it is. Hmm. So there's some cost that goes to the trustee piece of it if it's not going to be a family member that just says, yeah, I'll dive on that grenade, no problem. If someone leaves you money, but it's not a lot of money. I mean, does there a minimum amount for a trust, I guess is what I'm trying to say? Ooh, that's a really good question. So where does it become worthwhile right. to do that? Yeah, yeah, good point. So there isn't necessarily speaking an absolute figure that answers that question. I would say it depends on what you're wanting to achieve with it. Mm-hmm. So if you if you're wanting it to provide just a safety net that's their kind of a just-in-case type of scenario, mm-hmm. then it, it might be a relatively uh, smaller amount of money, say 250 or below, that could just be there just-in-case. 
if you're wanting it to be something that's providing ongoing support, mm -hmm. then it almost certainly has to be more than half a million. It depends, obviously, yeah. on what that ongoing support looks like. Mm -hmm. But you've got to think in terms of, is this 30 years? Right. The 50 years of supporting someone mm -hmm. that's got, in, in order for the math to work out, it ends up being more substantial chunks of dollars that have to go into it. Now, the other thing, and this goes back to a, a comment you made earlier about taxes, is there's also the question of where did the money originally come from and how is it going to be handled whenever the beneficiary no longer needs it, which more often than not is their death. So there's a two different ways that trusts get funded. One is first party, the other is second or third party rather. So first party and third party. So a first party funded means that the individual themselves funds it. Now, I realize that may seem like that would never occur because aren't they this individual that needs help? Why are they funding it? It happens because maybe they're receiving an inheritance. Mm -hmm. There's some type of pool of dollars that's suddenly showing up on their doorstep and the better answer is for it to go into a trust on their behalf. They, from their estate, have this pool of dollars and it goes into a trust. That's a first party trust in that case. Nearly always what happens in a first party trust situation is when the individual passes, then Medicaid gets paid back mm -hmm. anything that was spent to support that person during their life. And then anything left after that can go to whichever beneficiaries are designated. Nice. Yeah. Hmm. So they, they take back the money that they spent keeping you alive. Mm hmm. In a first-party trust scenario, that okay. is correct. <laughs> a third-party trust, the individual never tangibly receives anything. Mm -hmm. So this is where a friend or family member or what have you has established this and put money into a trust for this person's benefit. Mm. But there was no, in you know, fancy tax terminology, no constructive receipt. The individual never received it. It was never part of their estate. It was just made for their benefit. Mm. And so in that third-party scenario, you don't pay back Medicaid. There is no clawback happening. Wow. That's it, it, that's a reason why people would need to do it ahead of time. Yes. And then say, now what do we do with all this money? Uh -huh. yep. But to set it up, would the person who is giving the money leaving the money have to set the trust up or would like I be able to set a trust up and then tell them when you give this money, it needs to go here? Yeah, great question. So they don't have to be the one that forms the trust. Mm -hmm. It's just that the money needs to go straight to the trust mm -hmm. rather than going to the individual first. So okay. it would have to be in their will that the money goes to the trust. You got it. Got it. Okay. Yep. What if, let's say, one of my parents left money to Austin, but they said, well, I'm just going to give it to you because mm -hmm. I don't want to have to worry about sure. all of that. Sure. Talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So in principle, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. Uh, you want to make sure it's someone that is going to make a savvy decision with it. You seem like a very respectful, reasonable person. I think you'd do fine with it. But obviously, that would be a consideration, number one. And then number two is you just want to make sure that you're not creating some kind of tax problem for someone. And if all things considered, it's a, quote, relatively modest amount of funds, probably not a big deal. So if it's something that could, by the way, fit inside of an ABLE account, i.e. Mm -hmm. ABLE caps out at 100000 mm -hmm. yeah, that's probably fine to just put hand... it in that ABLE account. Sure. Okay, good. Because yeah. I think most of us are going to be in the situation where we're not going to have a half a million dollars. Understood. <laughs> but we didn't know what else to do. And we right. keep hearing about all these nightmare scenarios of sure. the government going, we'll yep. take that. Yep. 
So just get it into that ABLE account ASAP. $17,000 at a time. At $17,000 at a time. Okay. Uh, we're yeah. recording this in December. I don't uh-huh. know when this airs, but just for interesting note there, if you happen to be bridging a year, you could get 34000 in in a short period of time Ooh. by putting one in December and, and then putting Jan- seventeen in, in January. There you gotcha. go. <laughs> okay. Another reason we need people like you to tell us you these bet. things. Like I said, Lisa and I, we don't even know what we don't know. Understood. So we've talked about legal guardianships and we've talked about special needs trusts and ABLE accounts and all that. Is there anything that we need to know or people who have adults or about to be adults, Sure, really need to know? Ooh, yeah, great question. I would say that the most important thing is to actually map out a plan. And it, it is so easy when you are navigating the stress and the pressure and the day-to-day of special needs. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to let that feel overwhelming and consume your perspective, that it can be harder sometimes to pause and step back and say, okay, practically speaking, what does this look like five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Mm -hmm. And in part, that's a question about where are you going to be in life and your ability to help. And it's that facing your own mortality. People don't they don't make a will because they're like, once I make a will, that means I'm going to die someday. And and also for us, our claim to immortality that we wish we could have is because we don't know what's going to happen to our children. Right. If you have neurotypical kids, you figure they go to college, they get a job, they make it somehow. right? Right. Right. But with our kids, we face the double whammy of our own deaths That's exactly and what's right. going to happen to That's them. exactly right. So I understand the reluctance, but sticking your head in the sand, I say yeah. brushing sand off of my shoulders. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> I need a shovel. <laughs> I think people just need to know because you got to do the best you can to protect your child forever. Yep. That's exactly <laughs> you know? right. Mm-hmm. So besides, the, are, there, are there any other like categories like that we need to know about or does that pretty much cover it? So that pretty much covers it. But that long-term planning I'm talking about, I, I couldn't agree more that the second piece of it is thinking about the kiddos. And so it's in part thinking about your own mortality and what does that look like over time. But it's also about what can you do and how can you help them to navigate long-term thinking five years, 10 years, 20 years, mm-hmm. what have you, and making sure that there are sufficient elements in place to facilitate that growth, that evolution, that thought process over time. And sure, assets help with that piece of it. That planning then is in part goal setting, coaching, what have you, but it also incorporates a legal element. It incorporates a tax element. It incorporates a finance element. And so there's an integration of all of those pieces together that becomes important to make sure that you don't run afoul of the rules to make sure that you are maximizing tax benefits. There's an integration of disciplines that's happening there. And so all of those conversations have to happen. Yeah. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> that is also true. <laughs> oh, okay. I have one. Lisa may have something else, but I have one last question sure. for you. I mean, what do we look for when we're looking for a good financial advisor? Love that question. So uh, the first thing I would say is, you really want to make sure that you are finding someone who is helping you understand a process rather than cramming you into a product. Okay. Process uh, th- over product. Absolutely. There's a lot of folks in my industry that would look at a situation like special needs, for example, and would try to solve it with, say, an annuity. 
because mm-hmm. that's an easy way of generating a stream of income. I'm not anti-annuity necessarily, but I would want to really go through a very thorough process to understand, first off, what problem are we trying to solve? Because this concept of disability, this concept of neurodivergence is so broad Mm -hmm. that there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all. So help me better understand what are the limitations, what are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, right, a SWOT analysis, and let's start there before we begin to identify what the implementation is going to be. And so again, that goes back to process versus a product. So that would be the number one thing is someone who really walks you through a process rather than a product. Uh, Number two would be someone that's willing to educate you about the different options. If they're only presenting one option, to me, that's problematic. There may be one that is really strong, but to say that that's the only option to me would inherently be terrifying and I would run away. Uh, So I would want to be educated about my options. And then the third thing I would say is really just someone that is going to be along the journey with you and is going to be available and give you a certain measure of comfort in understanding and being not uh, knowledgeable about the domain because it is easy to feel overwhelmed by it. And some folks in my uh, profession end up operating more in this, hey, I'm the expert you know, sit down there, be quiet, take your medicine. Here's what we're going to do. And so someone that has a better bedside manner than that, I think is going to be really key, particularly given the kinds of discussions that would happen in this context. I, I totally agree. And I, this may be considered a soft skill or, but if you don't like the person, <laughs> if you don't feel that you have a rapport with them, I don't think this is somebody I want handling my future and my child's future. Yep. And maybe some people don't care about that, whatever the numbers are. But I, I'm like, I want you to know my story, kind of a girl. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I love that. And I think most people do. People want to connect on a human level. And I sure. think part of the rap with lawyers is they don't care about any of that. Right. But I know people like you and other mm-hmm. lawyers who do. Yeah, so absolutely. My piece of advice, which is what I usually give about doctors, is that if you don't like them, get out of there. There you go. And it doesn't, you don't have to sit through the whole spiel. Right. If you're not gelling, make some excuse. Absolutely. And, and go. But as you were describing that, it, one other piece of advice did occur to me as you're selecting that team that you're going to work with is look for a team and look for one that has a legacy plan in place for themselves. So what I mean by right. that is, right? What's going to happen when they <laughs> all die? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Is the company going to be you right. know, dissolved? Is it going to uh-huh. be around as long as my child is possible? You got it. Now, you got it. Yeah, so if you point. walk in and there's one advisor and that advisor probably went to school with Moses, <laughs> yeah. this may not be the best team for you. <laughs> I think you also got to be aware of um, being um, pushed around and too slick, too, sure. because there do- that does happen. I've oh, gotten yeah. into the fastest way to get me to not buy a car or whatever it is from you <laughs> is to pressure me. Right. But some people really cave under that pressure yep. too. So mm-hmm. I think if you're feeling that kind of you have to sign right now or this is off the table, no, right. no, 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 no. <laughs> Just from the consumer side, that's what I would offer. But Makes sense. Th- this has been such a wonderful discussion. Lisa, do you have any last minute words of wisdom or questions or no, I'm still digging myself out of the sand. <laughs> 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 okay. Do you have any um, things that you would like to add before we leave? Just that I would encourage everyone to reflect on what they're grateful for. So this is something that we do in every single conversation. We do it in our team meetings. I do it in every client meeting. 
And uh, we do it around the dinner table and have for a year and a half. We are so incredibly blessed. And it's easy, especially when you're caring for someone that requires a lot out of you. It's easy to lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so throughout this process and really just on a daily basis, my encouragement is to reflect on what you are grateful for because we have so much that we could be grateful for, but it's so easy to get pulled down into the negative. Well, that's true and good for anyone listening. Gratitude really does make you a better person in the world, a better place. Well, again, Kyle, thank you so much for spending time with us. And we'd love to have you back again someday if you're willing. I'd be thrilled to. Okay. Thank you so much. You bet.